0: Hey, welcome back to the Flex and Diet podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, and on this podcast, we talk about all things to help you lift more weight, performance, body composition, add some more muscle. And today, excuse me, I've been inhaling chalk in the gym, which isn't good. Um, We've got my good friend, Dr. Lisa Lewis on the program, and we had a good discussion about Different aspects on more of the mental uh, side of lifting and how to make progress. Uh, She is a licensed psychologist, certified addiction counselor, uh, doctor of education in counseling and sports psychology, and she's also a fitness enthusiast. She's written for different websites such as T Nation, uh, Personal Trainers Development Center, presented at the Fitness Summit, which is where I first. Uh, Met her and her husband, uh, Tony Gentilcore. Known Tony for a long time. We got to hang out with them both a while back now. And she's also written for Girls Gone Strong. She has a really great product uh, out. It's one of those products where I wish I would have gone through this myself years ago when I started. Called Psych Skills for Fitness Pros. You will find a link for it here under whatever your podcast favorite player is. Uh, note, I'm pretty sure it's an affiliate link. I don't know if the affiliate link is still working or not, but we'll just assume that it is. So I do make some money off of it, but really enjoyed the product. I think it's really good. Uh, She does a great job of having experience in both counseling and also working with fitness professionals. So enjoy this podcast with Dr. Lisa Lewis. As always, it's brought to you by the Flex Diet Certification. If you're looking for a certification to get your arms around nutrition and recovery for yourself or for your clients, go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com and you'll be able to get on the wait list for the next time that it opens. I'll put you on the daily newsletter, lots of great free content. Go to flexdiet.com and enjoy the program here. Dr. Lisa Lewis. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, and I'm here today with uh, Dr. Lisa Lewis. Thank you so much for being on the podcast again. or I don't remember if you've even been on here before, but I know we've chatted before and people have i'm sure seen your information around so thank you for making the time
1: you're welcome and i do think i was on once in the in the past so it's good to be back Yeah, it was
0: a while ago i know that so i'm starting to lose track of like who i've had on and who i haven't so (laughs) it's a good sign Uh, yeah um today we're thinking we're going to chat about some mental health aspects um, of fitness and in case if people have been living under a rock give us a little bit of your background and you're doing some super interesting stuff now. I know your time is split between two different areas.
1: Yeah. So I'm a therapist by trade. I have a a bachelor's degree in psych, a master's degree in clinical psychology, and a doctoral degree in counseling and sports psychology. So I started off um, be, being a master's level therapist and working with people who had mental illness, either inpatient psychiatry, inpatient substance abuse, or community mental health. And then I, I worked in addiction specifically for about five years. I um, got a specialty in addiction counseling, and I ran an intensive outpatient program for people newly recovered from drug or alcohol use for about five years. And then um, I earned the degree in, in counseling and sports psychology, which was more focused on positive psychology, thriving, counseling and psychological intervention for everybody along the mental health spectrum, whether they're struggling with a mental illness, or if they're healthy and functioning, but want to really level up, whether that be in performance or professionally, or just in their life and in their relationships. Um, So what I love about my career is I've gotten the opportunity to work with people at every point along kind of the health spectrum, in terms of how well they're doing and where they want to take themselves, how they want to evolve so, um, after I finished my doctoral degree, I, I worked in college counseling for some time, which I liked because in that environment, you get to be a generalist and really work with everybody. It could be like your nine o'clock person is presenting because they're having their first episode of clinical depression, and your 10 o'clock person is coming in because they had a nasty breakup and they need to talk about it, you know? And um, I knew that I wanted to have a private practice and I wanted to do my own thing. And because of sports psych, being in that program, I knew that what I really cared about a lot was exercise psychology and motivation and wellness, what helps people to really take good care of themselves and to care about taking care of themselves. Uh, My dissertation was focused on that. So um, I opened a little tiny private practice, then eventually left college counseling. And it's the practice I still have today, my LLC, which is probably half seen clients and some clients, you know, have issues with anxiety, depression, trauma, eating. Some clients don't have issues. They're really kicking a lot of ass, but they want to be kicking more ass. And that could be either performance related, uh, or lately since the pandemic, it's been a lot more professionally related in, in career. Um, and then sometimes people just want to work on aspects of their relationship or their social skills, um, but really don't have a diagnosable disorder. They just want more for themselves. Um, And then there's this other niche, which is why we're talking, which is in fitness and in wellness. Um, And so in in that, in this niche, I will present at conferences. I'll do in-services or workshops for people who are coaches. So either personal trainers, physical therapists, nutrition coaches, chiropractors, people who work with people around their body, but who need psychological skills and who need communication skills, counseling skills. Um, I also have a, a course that I've developed since working with these kinds of folks that's called Psych Skills for Fit Pros. And that really embodies what my work is here in this world is how, if you are a fitness professional, how do you use psychological skills to help people get results, to retain people over time and to help them to get the best out of themselves? Um, and also just to have awareness and education around mental health, what is mental health? How do people take care of mental health? And what's great about fitness is that pursuing health and fitness is fabulous for your mental health as well. So even though a lot of fitness professionals might not identify themselves as like being a mental health professional, they definitely interact with people's mental health and psychology, and they definitely can positively influence people's mental health and their psychology.
0: Yeah. I remember when I started training within the first five clients, I was like, ah, I had no fair amount about exercise physiology. I had started my PhD in the area, but I had taken a fair amount of classes, did a lot of minor in chemistry, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, this can't be too bad. <laughs> and I realized very short, I was like, I should have not been an exercise physiology person. I should have been a psychologist because this has almost nothing to do with exercise physiology, especially in the general population. I was just like, oh, what am I doing? And
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so
0: I ended up going back and took a bunch of neurobiology classes just to try to have some basis to figure out, like, what the hell's going on? <laughs>
1: yeah. And that's, I think that's why I ended up really leaning into this space and developing the course is because time and time again, I would interact with coaches who would say some version of what you just said, you know, like I know a lot about the X's and O's in program design and physiology, but I am not doing that day to day. Like I am dealing with people and people's, you know, difficulty getting out of their own way and their own psychologies. And, and, uh, I don't have any education or support around that
0: yeah and then you're now working for a startup company too, correct?
1: yeah, so um, as if you had nothing year, else though. going
0: on <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: and it all started as just a little consulting gig. you know sometimes companies will approach me to d- write a little something or you know do a little something. so it started off as just a little something, and the company is called G well Health. It is a genomics based digital platform um that is designed to use genomics to inform. Health and wellness choices and behaviors. So I started off just maybe eight hours a week, um, being a part of meetings and kind of being a think tank for how to get this thing started and then creating content. Um, and I really just loved it. You know, I never have been on the business end of things. And it, w- it is a collaboration with physicians, with um, people who study genetics, with business and marketing people. Um, so it's just been extremely fascinating to be part of a multidisciplinary team and to really think about really things like user experience and how can behavioral science and psychology help people to engage, to be motivated, and to actually use some kind of technology to enhance their wellness or to change their behavior that actually lasts over time. And so, Yeah, after eight or nine months of being involved, they asked me to come on board. So um, I'm there half my time during the week and I'm the head of behavioral sciences, which um, has been an exciting adventure to kind of learn about how I can help every arm of the company from product development and software to the content, to how we present the content to working with the marketing team um, and to helping to support the sales team, so it's a pretty cool gig where I get to like really cross train and learn a lot of stuff that is way outside of you know my own education, and it's been challenging but it's been really a fun ride so far.
0: Nice. Is the the oversimplified thought pattern here that? In the future, some people like a consumer like me would do a genetic test and that would kind of steer them in one direction for various aspects of health, including mental health. Then, or what is kind of the basis of it? Yeah.
1: So, that's a good question. The focus, the the primary focus of the app is musculoskeletal health. Hmm. And so, the idea is that a consumer or somebody who's an employee, so um, who we are speaking to now are. Insurers of employers who have, you know, a whole bunch of maybe teachers or truck drivers or employees who are under a, a health plan, and that the employer would offer this as part of their benefit. We are out there in the market as well, but we're thinking about this as a, as a prevention or early intervention kind of application. So the user could have genomics testing, and right now, you know, we are looking at. I I think it's maybe only 15 or 16 different areas. So maybe 30 SNPs. Um, so pieces of genetic information to look at whether or not people might have higher risk for things like osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, tendon, ligament injuries, um, other areas of musculoskeletal health. We are also looking at, um, risk of alcohol uh, use disorder, Mm. and depression. So, you know, as you probably well know, this is an area of science that's very new and is evolving all the time. Um, So the team, all of us on the team have been very conservative about looking at the literature and saying, okay, is there enough evidence to support us, you know, looking at a SNP and saying, yes, this means you might have higher risk or average risk or below average risk, even to develop some kind of condition. So our, our mission is really as the science moves forward to follow the science and to look at more and more SNPs in different areas of health. Um, you know, as the literature continues to grow um, and looking at, in particular, like genome-wide association studies, where we're, we're looking at huge populations and the, and the prevalence of certain variants um, in genetics, but that's only one piece of the puzzle. So we would pr- present users with, you know, here's here are different risk areas for you, um, and Here's we might recommend to let's say somebody has a, a higher risk, above average risk for developing osteoporosis. So what do they need to do? They need to take certain care of their nutrition, and they need to pick up heavy stuff and do you know weight bearing activity. So not that the recommendations we would provide are are like way out there; it would be very discrepant because everybody should be eating well and picking up heavy stuff, right? But that it would provide this extra layer of information about risk, which will may enhance motivation of people to really have more agency to take action just to provide that extra information about their health. So we're hoping that the genomics will inform decision-making around health behaviors. And then that we can use that to help them identify goals of things they want to work on. And then we provide content, um, in six different areas, which are nutrition, strength, sleep, uh, wellness, or mental health, Recovery and mobility. Hmm. So again, there's a musculoskeletal focus, um, and there's content authors so the, who are physical therapists, surgeons, non-operative um, orthopedic doctors, cardiology. We have a couple sleep specialists. You know those kinds of folks. We have a, a, a health coach as well, um, and trying to offer structure, you know, people getting little pieces of information, like that might be on a feed with just pieces of information or suggestions about improving sleep or sleep hygiene, and then bigger pieces of content that would be maybe curriculum around a weight loss plan or learning about anti-inflammatory nutritional habits, so on and so forth. So it's very much, you know, still being developed, um, but we are out there in the market and, um, you know, I think there's a lot more to come in terms of how we evolve and in which directions we'll grow or what other kinds of SNPs we'll start looking at in the future.
0: Yeah, I've done a a one, two, three, like four genetic tests so far over the past, maybe five years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I always go back and forth on it. I think from a... A Mm -hmm. research standpoint and this is definitely not my area of research at all Mm. it's fascinating and i keep hoping for more direct links because i think it's something that people the general population wants the answer right they want to know what am i at risk for what do i do and as you know yes science is rarely ever that clear on freaking anything and if it is it takes 10 20 you know 30 years of even stuff like carbohydrates, right? We're still learning new stuff about carbohydrates. We've been looking at this for well over 150 years. We've poked needles, what Bergstrom from needle at 1963. We've done muscle biopsies to directly look at it for decades. And we still have questions, right? Right. But on the flip side, I think even if it only is enhancing the outcome and the science is, yeah, it's there, but maybe it's still early on. I Mm -hmm. think for a lot of people, if your goal is to get them to do a certain action, I found that testing works really well. Like yeah. I do an at-home uh, fish oil test, so it runs every lipid in their body. I can look at a dietary analysis and have a pretty damn good idea if they're going to be low in essential fatty acids or not. But in terms of getting them to do something, I found and tested this over time that if I show them a report, that's a valid report that says, hey, you're pretty low on these things. They're like, oh... Oh, I didn't know. Like what do I do? Right? There seems to be this kind of intrinsic motivation to kind of you want to win the test all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think that can be useful if the main goal is to drive change. So I yes. I'm always fascinated by this. Okay, here's what the hardcore research says, you know, how much of the bleeding edge do you want to be on? And then what is your overall goal? Is your goal to be published in a journal or is your goal to get general population to do more of the things that we already know, but they weren't doing them before. So if this drives Mm -hmm. them in a better direction, in my opinion, that's okay. As long as you're not making huge, grievous errors with stuff, which I wouldn't imagine that you would be.
1: Right. And so I this is a very important point that you're making because we're way, way, way far away. I don't know if we'll ever get to a place where we say, here's your genetic test. Here's exactly what you should be doing right. and we can predict your future. Um, but the information I think is so compelling to people. And one example that I will use is when I was looking at the literature around the genetics around alcohol use and alcohol use disorder, You know, they've looked at probably eight to 10 different SNPs. And as I was combing through all of this, there were really only two that I found compelling. And they were, they had to do with production of the enzymes for alcohol dehydrogenase, a couple of hmm. different enzymes for that. And to me, they had like this, really the strongest statistics behind them. And, and there were multiple studies that found that if you had this variant where you can produce more alcohol dehydrogenase, there's a high, higher likelihood that you could have a problem with alcohol or have alcohol use disorder. And Mm. so this is not saying to a person, oh, you've got the alcoholism gene. No, it's not saying that. It's saying you might be a person or come from a family that is really able to metabolize alcohol well. And what that means is that you might naturally be able to drink more than all of your buddies when you're out drinking. And the more you drink and the earlier you start drinking, the higher the chances are that you could get yourself into trouble. So it's not saying, Oh, you're going to get alcohol. Yeah. It's just saying the way your body chemistry works, it's a setup for you to be able to drink more heavily. And there was some controversy among me and my colleagues among whether or not we should include the sensitive information about alcohol and would people freak out if they saw this. And, you know, number one, I I feel like when it comes to substance use and and mental health, there's a stigma around that, but we're not saying that we're just saying what I feel is very compelling. Cause if I was talking to someone in their twenties or their thirties, who was questioning their alcohol use, and I could say to them, okay, look, it looks like folks in your family or your genetic background, you may have this predisposition to like be able to drink more and longer than other people, which means you might have a history of just drinking more, um, and pr- and that person would probably say, "Yeah, it's I'm totally like the first guy in. I'm the last guy out. I'm the guy who drinks the most, and my family really gets after it. And like Uncle Bob and Uncle Joe can really <laughs> tie one on, and, you know." And so there's this connection that I feel like what you're saying is extremely compelling. And just not that we're telling them something they don't already know, because that person probably knows that there's heavy drinkers in their family, or it probably is going to resonate. And then somebody who doesn't drink might say, well, I don't even drink. I have like, you know, a glass of wine twice a year or whatever. So, okay. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you're going to develop alcoholism. You know, there's nothing for you to worry about. So the science is really a lot less sexy, I think, than maybe somebody who's uninformed might think it is. It's not fortune telling. It's just, I think it could be really useful in giving people a, one more added reason to, to try to take better care of themselves.
0: Yeah. And I, I, my view of a lot of testing now is even with heart rate variability, whatever is mm-hmm. most of the time it, I think the outside perception is that it makes your job easier, but I think it makes your job harder, but better. Right. It allows me to present something and be like, hey, it looks like you're really stressed. I don't see any change in your indicators. I don't see any training performance differences like, you know, what's going on? Or if I didn't have that information, I probably would have never asked that question. And I might have missed some huge event going on in their life. You know, I had this happened a, a couple of years ago. I remember and the person's like, oh, I had my dog for 11 years and he passed away You know, two days ago. She never mentioned it, never talked about it at all. And I don't think if I would have seen a change in stress that she probably would have not ever mentioned it. You know, mm-hmm. so sometimes I think of testing as just ways like when you said, hey, you have a higher risk of this. Does this match with what you're seeing? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But I would guess that you would get more further into a conversation with that starting than then be like, hey, what's going on?
1: <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah, so it definitely gives some pieces to talk about. I definitely think it could be compelling, Um, and it's not—it's not ever going to be the end all, be all. Yeah, it's so. I mean, that's science is so complicated, as as you, I think you are familiar with. Um, And I think we have a long way to go in terms of understanding how all the dots connect and how all factors, including the environment, combine to create you know, how we feel and how our health is and how we behave. Um, But it's really cool to learn about it and to, and to think about it, especially coming from a counseling background, which is like pure application and environment, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think some of those just genetic changes predispose themselves to the more useful conversations, right? So one of the genetic tests I took said, I got, what was it? ACTN one or three gene for like sprinting. I don't yep. remember what I had. I think I actually had it, which I was shocked. Um, but then I'm like, okay, so if I'm using this on clients and the client's goal is speed and power, and they already know they're probably not going to be an Olympic athlete because they're coming to me in their mid-30s. You know? Mm-hmm. Eh, you're know, you probably not going to make the Olympic team now. And their goal is speed and power. And they have the gene and they don't have the gene. Would I really train them any different? Right. I think there's a lack of data to say, hey, we took this group of people They had this version of the gene. We trained them this way. They got this much better. This group didn't have that version. So we did this different training method, which we got an equivalent result. And I think that's like the next level with, at least on the performance side, like the intervention stuff that we're missing, right? So the client's probably not going to change their goal. And I'm left with, okay, you have the gene or don't have the gene. I don't know for me as a coach, how I would train you any different. So I don't know how it would affect what I'm doing. You know, and I think that's the hard part with some of the genetic aspects too.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so far, we're just trying to see if we can identify common variants for people (laughs) who present with certain, you know, so they're, you know, they call it the sprinter gene in some, I think in Ancestry, they call it the sprinter gene. And I, and um, there's another company I recently looked at. We don't call that SNP the sprinter gene. I forget if we call it muscle recovery or what, but, um, it's like, it's not sitting in our bodies called the sprinter gene, but right. <laughs> we can associate the prevalence of that variant in that SNP with certain kinds of traits or outcomes. So it really is a very young, very, very young science, but it's so cool. Uh, and it's so fascinating that I think it really piques people's interest and whatever gets you in the door, you know, whatever gets you yeah. caring about doing something that's good for yourself let's
0: go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where, like I said, the, the error gets made, right? Because you've got all the hardcore academics who are like, ah, we just don't know enough about, it's not useful. (laughs) But Mm. like you said, maybe it gets you farther into a conversation that is with someone of your background, very useful, you know, for the person. And, you know, at this point, I'm like, Hey, if it gets you to eat better and move more, even if the science is a little shaky, I'm probably okay with it. Right. Which I know right. makes a lot of people stick their head in the sand and yell at me, but mm. you find any other intervention that's getting people to do something better and yeah, go for it. Cause we're, yeah. we're definitely lacking in, the, in that area of yeah. the population. We need
1: all the tools <laughs> in the toolbox. And even, you know, I I've worked with so many people who are, are, they come in because they're, they have trouble with anxiety or they have trouble with depression but they're not really taking a lot of action. They don't have a lot of agency. And even to be able to take a family history and to say, okay, your dad struggles with serious clinical depression. Your grandfather completed suicide. This uncle, you know, hasn't left the house in 15 years. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and just to have them see that and to say there's a family history here. Like let's throw everything we got at it. Like get up and go outside in the morning and get the light box and take the vitamin D and, exercise and do this, you know, just to even be able to tell them, like, take a look at what your risk might be. And there's a lot of different ways we can come at this. I I think even that is useful. So to have something in black and white, you know, from looking at your genetic blueprint, um, that's just another level of being able to have an impact on someone.
0: Yeah. And I've always argued that if, you know, like yourself, you're in the applied realm, right? Obviously, you have huge education background, did a terminal degree, a PhD, but you're working with people to get them better on a day-by-day basis, right? So you're definitely in the applied realm. Yep. You're living between these two worlds of the research side will be hypercritical that you don't publish enough papers, you're not furthering the research, you're doing weird shit that the research doesn't approve of. Then yeah. you have the experiential side that's like, Does a client that's sitting in front of you now give two fucks about 17 studies you read last week? They they don't really care. They want to get better. They're paying you money to get better. Obviously, you're going to use the research to do the best that you can, but you're not going to be 100% limited by it because you know you understand all the limits of research, the population, the statistics. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's interesting when you're in the middle, which I think we need more people to be there because that's the applied knowledge. That's where everything actually gets moved forward, but you tend to take a lot of shit from both sides.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. When I first started at my in my graduate program, uh, the model was the scientist practitioner model. And I didn't really, I don't know, that didn't make a difference to me and I didn't really think a lot about it. But now in my day-to-day life, I think a lot about that, about those two worlds that you're describing and how can I exist in the middle of that space? Um, and I think it's the best space to be in. And I think people really appreciate it because clients do, you know, if you can say something to them about what's in the literature or what's yeah. the science that really matters to them a lot, but you have to say it like a human being, you know, you cannot, yeah. you cannot say it like <laughs> you're reading it out of a, out of a, an abstract or whatever. Um, so it, it, it is a very cool, but, but, Tough
0: line to walk. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've done with with hands-on therapy that I do with some people in Minnesota is if I don't really think they're ready to open up as much and they seem just very nervous about stuff, I actually mm-hmm. end up being more hyper clinical analytical. I'll talk to them in analytical, you know, here's your psoas and here's where it attaches and this kind of stuff. Just right to go a little bit further on that side so that they can kind of relax a little bit more. If they seem more relaxed and they're kind of trusting of the process, I, a lot of times don't really say much of anything about what I'm doing because I don't want to interrupt what other things may come up if they're at a point to release them. So I think that's something I've gotten a little bit better just by pure accident over time of judging At least in that setting, like how far of one side or the other do you go? And it's the same thing even with online clients too. Some want, you know, the hypercritical answer. Some just want to be, you know, they trust you and they're like, okay, just do this. Cool. I'm good. I'm good. I don't need anything else. So it's just trying to, it's the art of trying to find where you are on that scale. And it's different for each person too.
1: That's right. And that art, that is a psychological skills art. Like, People who are fitness professionals do use psych skills. They do use counseling. Oh, all skills the time, all the time. And what you're just saying there, like that, is a fabulous counseling skill to just let there be quiet and an open space to see what comes up and what's going to come out. And you're just waiting for the data. That's like black belt level of you know, because a lot of young professionals just want to fill up the space and talk, 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 and yeah. show how much they know and um, you know, fill that space. So to leave that empty space is is way harder. Um, and then, like you said, to know which client wants to hear every single little bit of feedback and wants a lot of education and wants their competency built. And what client just wants to like the enjoyment of being taken care of in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> Silence, you know, that, that it takes a lot of, I think, like being seasoned To be able to feel that out from person to person and also to be thinking about what is going to be most useful because sometimes clients don't want there to be quiet, but it really would be the best thing for them for you to fill up the space and for them to, you know, have a moment to see what comes up for them.
0: Yeah, and you're riding the line of providing them what they want and they enjoy. So they come back, so they stay compliant and they stay with the program versus giving them also what they need at the same time. Because at the end of the day, you're being paid for a result. And yeah, I could give them programming they love, but that's probably isn't going to get them to their result. So how much of the stuff do they need? Can I weasel in? I think I've gotten a little better over time of just being straight up with them being like, hey, okay, if you really want to hit this goal, you need to do this and this. If you don't want to hit this goal or you want it to take three, four months longer, that's totally cool. We can back off on some of this. That's fine but you can't do everything that you love to do and expect to hit this goal. where I think in the past, have that conversation because I just wanted to avoid the whole thing <laughs> altogether. And then six months into it, they're mad that they didn't get the goal. And I'm thinking, but you love your training, what's wrong? And yeah, I kind of right. hose that up. <laughs> see, that
1: is some ninja shit right there to, to really help te- like show that to the client that you could have this. Right. This is what it involved, Or you could just have that and you could do that. And that's fine with me. You know, that's really like top notch counseling skill. And I think that is the kind of thing that brings up so much anxiety and stress for trainers as they want their clients. They want their clients to be happy. They want to have a successful business. And at the same time, they're like, why don't the clients just do what I tell them to do? Why are they, you know, (laughs) why is everybody such so freaking hard to make them change and and um it is such a tough juggling act and in psychology in counseling like we get a lot of training and a lot of formal education and informal you know supervision and encouragement around that kind of stuff but you guys get zipped
0: no nothing really
1: scary i think it's really scary particularly for young people just coming into it like how do i do this dance how do i walk this line um So I'm so glad that you and other people are talking about it and saying like, this is something really important because I I think it's the reason that some people burn out and why they leave the industry. It's just really tricky.
0: Yeah. And even even right before I got on this call, I had an email from someone, don't know the person, who wanted a um, copy of the certification I do, the Flex Diet Cert, for free. And he's like, I just don't have any money. And I'm like, no, we don't do that because people have paid for it. You know, I know people who yeah. saved up for six months, you know, in order to, you know, pay for it. So it's not fair to them to just give it for free to you. Plus, I'm thinking mm-hmm. it took me, you know, 13 years of my life to come up with it, to aggregate yeah. all the data, et cetera. And then the next email came back in, of, and I said, hey, here's another resource. You get 180 videos. It's free. Basically, you pay whatever you want. Here's the newsletter is free. Here's a whole bunch of free articles. And then the second email was, the same thing of well, I don't have a credit card I don't even have a penny and it's so hard because I know I did the right thing and I'm not going to change yes it. but yep. at the same point I told my wife I'm like okay in the future I will never see these emails because emotionally I know it's hard on me because I know what it's like to start I know what it's like to not have any money I know what it's like to try to do something and have it be very difficult but I also know that like the stuff I got for free I consciously or unconsciously did not appreciate it as much as the stuff that I had to work for also so not only is there a value thing it's the sort of appreciation of it especially until you get to a certain level and you understand how much effort went into something right I think when you're new on the outside it just looks like oh it's an ebook it doesn't cost you anything just give it to me for free it's an online course it doesn't cost you anything it's like you don't appreciate how much time and effort anybody put into developing anything. And I think as you've been around longer, you appreciate that. But especially as trainers, I think it's very easy to undervalue your service, because you just kind of feel like, well, I don't know, I'm just having them do exercise. I'm like, but you might be the only person like I've had people tell me stuff about, you know, alcohol addiction, all sorts of crazy stuff, which, you know, obviously is a, a referral out. But most of the time they were like, I I haven't even told my spouse this, like they don't even know about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the kind of things as a trainer, I think you're, you're dealing with, which Mm -hmm. I would argue is a very high paid professional service, but the industry in general, I think is, oh, you're just, you're just counting reps, right? So I think it's very easy to kind of devalue and kind of give in to all these other crazy requests that, also take kind of an emotional toll on you too, which leads to trainers going, I don't know, I'm spending 40 hours a week. I'm not making any money. I just feel like I've emotionally like had it too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That stuff is all so brutal. And just in the helping profession, this idea that you should give yourself away for free, no matter what your service are. Because to your point, being a good coach means that you have been out there in the world having experience, that you have an education, that you continue, that you practice applying so that you know how to progress and regress exercises, so that you know how to connect with a wide variety of clients, so that you know how to get results with all different kinds of people. And that is, it may not be an article of clothing or it may not be a piece of artwork, but it is a combination of skills and experiences that somebody is purchasing. Um, and, and I totally think that it gets undervalued both in the industry and like during our education and our training, cause I don't know about you, but when I was training, I gave my ass away for free for like a decade, (laughs) you know, and then you come out of that and all of a sudden Uh, you're supposed uh, to charge a fee and, and then somebody asks you to have it at a discount or have it for free. And of course our knee jerk is to like, want to help the person and to be like, well, I didn't make any money the last 10 years. Like maybe this is okay. (laughs) You know, it's really hard to switch into like now this is how much I'm worth. Um, so again, it's, it's a whole head game, um, to really learn how to ask for your worth and to stick to your boundaries. Like, I think that's a really important story that you shared about. It was hard to, to hold the line there and hold the boundary, but you know, that you made the right decision for a number of different reasons.
0: Yeah. And I think that gets into just the whole (laughs) I think about the entertainment industry a lot. Obviously, I'm a huge music fan. I used to DJ in college, go to a lot of concerts. Unfortunately, not lately. Um, But Mm. as a trainer, you are, at the end of the day, providing an experience. Yes, you have to be knowledgeable. Yes, you have to provide them ways to get their goals. But you are providing them an experience, especially with in-person, to a little bit lesser degree, online. And I look at anything else that provides an experience generally is extremely expensive right? Like if you want to go to a concert and you want to get front row seats, or you want to go backstage, you want to do VIP or whatever it is, mm-hmm. name any band, doesn't matter what you listen to. It's generally going to be quite expensive if you want to do a better experience at a restaurant or wherever. But with fitness, I think we've kind of relegated it to, ah, it's just the physiology, you're just counting reps. It's just overload. When reality, to me, it should be those things are a given. You have to know how to do that. You have to know the X and O's. That's just that's just the baseline to get in the door. The next level is you're providing experience for that person, and to me, that should be uh, something that is, in general, more expensive but not uh, cheaper. And mm-hmm. if people want other options of just you know how to do programming, there's you know different levels you can do, but the one-on-one I think should be the highest level in. By definition, some people are not going to pay for it. And that's okay. I'm not saying not serve everyone, but have different levels. And at the highest level, it should be expensive because you're paying for that experience, which is a little bit different to get through. I mean, I wish someone would have told me that 15 years ago Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I started because I was just so hyper-focused on oh, they got to do this super secret Russian periodized training programs like half
1: <laughs> better than this last one.
0: It's like, kind doesn't get any fucks about that. You know, yeah. <laughs> I got better leverage by asking, Hey, what do you enjoy? And like one guy who told me when I was doing in-person stuff, baseball. So I could give two craps about baseball. I just don't care, but I made it a point to look to see what was the twins doing you know, how are the saints doing? Like before I had a session with him so I could ask him about it and I at least appeared like I had some level of knowledge.
1: Right. I right. didn't care,
0: but I knew it was important to him. And that showed that I cared about the process and right. therefore he was more compliant and, you know, did better. So it's all these weird right. little things that are not necessarily related to programming that are more on the psychological aspect.
1: It's the relationship, taking yeah. care of the relationship. I always say to coaches, the the health of the relationship is the most important piece of equipment that you have that rapport and your ability to connect is like will if it will make the biggest difference overall in in how well they respond and how much they engage and how long the relationship lasts and their ability to be honest with you i remember one time you shared about a client who just ate a lot of Oreos. And (laughs) you didn't say you have to stop eating all the Oreos, you figured out a way to work with the Oreos. And that's just a much more realistic way to practice than telling people what to do and then getting pissed off when they don't do it.
0: Yeah. And last question for kind of related to trainers, do you think there's some maybe way for trainers to figure out if They even like doing a lot of the interactions, like being a one-on-one trainer versus more online technician. Like one of the things I figured out for myself just by brute force was I don't like working with people one-on-one that much. Like I could do it for a couple hours a week. but once I started crossing 10, 15, 20 hours a week, I hated my life. Like I'd have a full day of doing it. (laughs) And I could do it. Like if you dropped in on a session, you probably wouldn't know. But man, I was toast for like two days after that. It was very energy intensive for me. And so Mm -hmm. when I switched to more online stuff, I could get clients who needed more technical information. We could look at lifestyle. We could look at a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I have people that fly in sometimes for a weekend. That's great because I pick whoever I want. And it's super awesome to hang out with them for a weekend. But for me to do it every day is very hard. I know a couple other people where if they never have to talk about programming, someone does all the programming for them. They just execute what is written. Like they love it. They think that's like the, you know, some of the people train for like Mark Fisher Fitness, like some of the guys there, like they love it. That's if they could do that 60 hours a week, they're like happy as hell. So it's just super interesting. I don't know if there's a way for people who are new listening to this to kind of figure out maybe where you are on that spectrum, or is it just kind of reps?
1: I think you got to check your tank like you mentioned. You know, you said to me I could do it, but then I was shot for 2 days right. after that. <laughs> you know. So, if the if the activity fills the tank and you feel energized and you feel fulfilled, that's a good sign. If you're zapped and you need whatever you need to refuel the tank, you know, if it drains you, then that's information too. Um, so I think you got to pay attention to what happens. After you do it and then respect that just, you know, what, what I hate to hear from people is I'm just being lazy or I'm just being what don't, you don't judge it. You just look at it like data and say, if it's sucking the energy out of my tank, then that eventually is going to lead to diminishing returns as to something that makes you feel good or makes you feel like you've got more in the tank.
0: Yeah. My last quick comment on that will wrap up is it also one of the big aha for me was, when I realized, and I got this from Mike Bledsoe and Doug Larson, was the things I was really good at were easy for me to do. And yes. I equated the value of that on the amount of time it took me to execute a task. Right, mm-hmm. So I did some research for some companies. I'm like, oh yeah, this was super easy. It took me a half hour, but I knew exactly where to look. I was well-versed. I had read all most of the literature up until that point. So it only took me a half hour. It turns out later, I found out they had some other people on staff that had been looking for weeks and couldn't find anything. But I charged them just for a half hour of my time. Like, ah, oh, here you go. I was uh, easy. Uh, and they're like, uh-huh. no, you should charge more for that because it's a higher yeah. value to the people yeah. who are getting it. And don't That's just right. base it on the time it took you to do it. Because if you're better That's at right. something, in general, it's going to take you less time than if you're not so good. not so good at it. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs>
1: And that they are benefiting from all of your experience, how many reps you have in that you knew exactly where to go. So I think this is such an important point you're making. That is part of your value is all of that ability you've accrued. And that the fact that you can execute it in a half an hour should cost more.
0: Yeah. And so for trainers who are out there lamenting that it doesn't take them three hours to do a program now, like 10 years into their career, then that's okay. Like it should take you a lot less time and the program should be a lot better than what it was before. And consequently, you should charge more and more. that should be part of your mindset.
1: And it's yes. yeah, it's
0: easy to get kind of dragged down the other way. <laughs> totally.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. It's really great. You're talking about this. I hope everybody is absorbing it and that they can absorb more because I, I think we all who are helping people, um, and using the quote-unquote soft skills, I think we need to hear a lot more of this.
0: Yeah, and so tell us more where they can learn about your course, which I really loved. I thought it was awesome, and I've
1: Thank highly you. recommended
0: it to a lot of people because it's one of those things I wish I had when I started, like many, many years ago. It would have, oh man, it probably would have saved me like literally years and <laughs> a lot of headache. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. So uh, the course is called Soft Skills for Fit Pros, and you could go to my website, which is my home base. That's Dr. Lewis Consulting. Dot com and you can click on products and then access the course that way. Or you could just go to psychskillsforfitpros.com. Uh, what is available now is volume one, uh, which is all the foundations of of motivation and behavior change. And I also would encourage uh, people who are listening to follow me on Instagram. Uh, that's Dr. Lewis at Dr. Lewis Consulting, which really is all content around strength training, fitness and mental health and how those two things combine how they help one another how they're inextricably linked
0: and you have a newsletter too
1: i do have a newsletter which you can sign up for via my website thank you i forgot to mention yeah that.
0: and the main website again is
1: uh dr Lewis
0: perfect awesome well thank you so much for all your time today i really appreciate thank it It was always know. great to chat with you again and uh yeah same hopefully we'll get to meet up in person again at some point, maybe this year, or hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, I that hope be so. Fun.
1: Yes, it would, for sure.
0: Yeah, Awesome. Well, thanks again. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Mike. Take care. All right.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, as you probably realized, I am back from Costa Rica. I made it out of quarantine. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, listen to the last episode with my buddy, uh, Ryan the Cure. I kind of go into it a little bit, but I am back. So it is nice to be back home, even though it is quite a bit colder than it was in Costa Rica. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast with Dr. Lisa Lewis. Uh, Give me some feedback. Let me know what you liked, if there's something you didn't like. Uh, We take all forms of reviews, whatever stars you want to give the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. That helps us out a lot. Thank you so much. And for more information, if you want on the nutrition and recovery side, go to flexdiet.com, F L E X D I E T.com, for eight different interventions on how to maximize your ability to recover using nutrition and different recovery methods, such as sleep and walking. This is also great for body composition without destroying your health. Uh, This is mainly designed for coaches. So it's a system on how you can coach your clients uh, through it, but about 40% of the people who have picked it up so far have enrolled are actually more advanced uh, fitness enthusiasts. So it works for them also, uh, but was primarily designed as a complete system for coaches to walk people through nutrition. So go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T, click to the wait list there to put you on the free newsletter. Thank you so much. Thank you to Dr. Lisa Lewis for doing this podcast. Always wonderful to chat with her. We will talk to you again next week. See ya.